Hi, Cherise here with a special announcement. You can now enjoy select episodes of Detailed in video form. That's right. Detailed is now available on RCAT's YouTube channel. Now, you may be thinking, I already listened to the podcast. No need to watch it on YouTube. Well, trust me, if you don't want to miss out, even if you're an avid listener of the podcast, the video format is a completely different experience. Not only is it like hanging out with us, but you also get to hear parts of the conversation that were left on the cutting room floor. You can also see the photos, drawings, and video as we discuss the incredible projects that are featured. Come join us on YouTube. Follow the link in our show notes, and let's get into the details. Running along three sides of these sort of gills, like the gills on a fish. And within that sort of armature of of the metal cladding is a huge space. It's a six-story, almost sort of cathedral-like space. And that's about getting natural ventilation. So it's about drawing air in from the southern winds, naturally ventilating, and then expelling the hot air out, out of these gills. And it works incredibly well, and it's super simple. So it's, it's a bit of form, well, function driving form rather than the opposite way around. This is Detailed. An original podcast by RCAT. I am your host, Sharice Lakeside, Senior Specification Writer at RDH Building Science and fondly known as the CSI Kraken. We will speak with professionals who share their insights into the most complex, interesting, and odd building conditions and the ingenuity it took to make it work. Join me as I pull back the curtain on the building industry and uncover the lessons learned. You'll gain valuable knowledge to help you better navigate your next project. Welcome to Detailed. The voice you heard in our opening is our guest, Christopher Lee, Senior Principal and Managing Director, EMEA at Populous in London. Born on the east coast of Australia, Christopher has degrees in both design and architecture. He has worked around the world for major international sports clients and designed over 30 stadia on five continents. Wow. These projects include the main stadium for the Sydney Olympic Games in 2000, Europe's first moving roof stadium, the Millennium Stadium in Cardiff, Wales, the Emirates Stadium for Arsenal Football Club, and Aviva Stadium, the Irish National Stadium in Dublin, Ireland. As part of his project work, Christopher has been involved in the design of large-scale master plans that seek to integrate the design requirements of Stadia into the wider public realm. Christopher spent six years in the USA leading the New York office of Populous. During this time, he was responsible for leading the design of the AIA award-winning 50,000-seat stadium for the football club de Monterey in Monterey, Mexico, the FIFA Standard Stadium for the American MLS team, the Houston Dynamo in Houston, Texas, and the 40,000-seat Estadio das Dunas for the 2014 FIFA World Cup in Brazil. He has also worked on other public building types, including the Delhi Convention and Exhibition Center in India, the Nanjing Convention Center and Exhibition Center in China, the Liverpool Event Center in the UK, and Doha Education City Education Campus in Qatar. Christopher sits on the Populous 
Global Board of Directors, the EMEA Board, and on the Practices Global Strategic Committee. He is a regular lecturer at the New York University Graduate School and guest critic at the Bartlett School of Architecture in London and the Columbia Graduate School of Architecture in New York. Christopher has been involved in drafting design and technical guides for FIFA, MLS, and the UK's Guide to Safety at Sports Grounds, the Green Guide, as well as being a regular contributor to Building Design Magazine in London. Christopher is a frequent speaker at conferences around the world on the architecture of sports and entertainment buildings and their role in our cities and popular culture. The project we are going to chat about today is Estadio BBVA in Monterey, Nuevo Leon, Mexico. Before we get started, don't forget to take a look at the project photos and drawings as you listen along. You can click the link in our show notes or visit www.arcat.com podcast. Completed in 2015 and recently selected to host games at the 2026 World Cup, Estadio BBVA sits at the heart of the restored Parque La Pastora, Monterey's latest recreational and leisure destination. Prior to its inception, it all started with Chris meeting the client, who he would soon find was quite progressive in his vision to reimagine a stadium for Mexico. Well, look, I think we started on the project around 2008. I was then based in New York, ran the office in New York for a long time, and met a chap called Juan Fernandez, who was the CEO of a big Mexican brewer called FEMSA. And FEMSA are one of the biggest brewers and bottlers in Latin America and certainly in Mexico. And they owned a football team called the Football Club of Monterey, called the Riedos. And we got on famously well. I went down to visit him several times in Monterey. And he had this great vision, I think, of really producing he called an international standard stadium. I mean, they were playing then at the local university stadium at the technology stadium, which was a, an open seating bowl. That was it. was amazing in many ways, but clearly not a contemporary stadium. But he wanted to create a stadium for his club that was international standard, but very much a Latin American football stadium. And I thought that was a really great brief to to try and contextualize a stadium you might be familiar with in in the states, but bring it into a, a Latin American or Mexican context. You've worked on a lot of really amazing stadiums. How did your path lead you there? Yeah, I mean that's a great story. I I, I never even imagined or knew that there were people that did stadiums as a profession. Like I said, I grew up in Australia and I joined a practice then that had just won the stadium for the Olympic Games in Sydney. This is in the the mid nineteen nineties, and I worked on that stadium, we delivered it, and it was amazing. It was, I was totally captivated by this idea of one, you know, the Olympic Games in Sydney was a huge thing for Australia. You know, it was a sort of marking of a, a modern nation and now world stage. But then the stadium, where, which was quite a big stadium for the Games, is 117,000, was sort of phenomenal to get this idea that you had this incredible community that shared these amazing moments that you still think about, like I still think Kathy Freeman lighting the flame, that totally captivated me. And I was hooked with this idea of how you could create these buildings that were, I guess, containers of memories for generations. And you come into, I moved to the UK then, and you come into these sort of environment where literally generations of people have been coming, taking their sons and daughters to 
fill in the football star, club or stadium. And they meant something and they were really special. So I got totally captivated by the idea of sports architecture and what sport and what stadiums mean to our community. That understanding of sports architecture's impact on our communities is the lifeblood of this building. Fernandez also understood its importance and aimed to reimagine three components, the fan experience, premium seating and amenities, and the importance of culture to design. Look, I think he was really looking for a new venue for his team that he wanted the team to develop. Like I said, they were playing in a very old university stadium, but he wanted a stadium that was very much Mexican and very much Latin American and wanted to take the culture and the spirit of the old stadium into a new context with all of the the bits you would expect from a new stadium, but not lose that sort of essence or soul of the stadium. So he wanted to create this very contextual building, I think. Monterey sprawls over the semi-arid floodplain of the Santa Catarina River. Parts of the city are set against the scenic backdrop of Mount Sia, which rises above the plain to an elevation of more than 5,500 feet. Monterey is also the heart of one of the country's largest urban agglomerations, making Nuevo Leon's the third largest state economy in Mexico. It is home to a mixture of services and manufacturing, brewing and iron and steel manufacturing that produce steel sheet rolls and an array of other metal products. This context inspired the stadium's sculptural structure. The stadium is in Monterrey, which is in northern Mexico. And Monterrey has a, a great history. I mean, it's the sort of industrial heartland of Mexico. It has a long history of brewing, hence my client. But what it, what it also has is this incredible mountain range called the Ciro de Silla, which runs through the city and is sort of ever-present. No matter where you turn, this looming mountain is over you. And it's the bit when I went to see the game and watch the team in the old stadium. What's a bit that really struck me was how present the mountain was in the game. It was an open stadium, so it was an open bowl. So no matter where you watch, you're always watching the game with the Ciro de Silla as your backdrop. And so I really wanted that to continue. So the stadium is a clad in aluminium or aluminum standing seam, (laughs) (laughs) just in case no one knows what I'm saying. Um, (laughs) Well, you said that and I was like, wait, what is he talking about? I remembered you guys, you guys say things. Yeah, we do. (laughs) So it's a silver clad, it's mill finish. So it's, it's matte but metallic. It has these vertical ribs that run over it and it's quite curved shaped. But at one end of what would be a normal sort of symmetrical stadium, it dips down very low. And that's all about dipping down. And so this view of the mountain, it's almost kneeling to the mountain. So when you're in the seating bowl, the Ciro is still part of the game and still part of this backdrop. And I think that's one of the things I really wanted to develop in this idea of sort of contextualism and what it means to have a build a stadium in in Monterey as opposed to Melbourne or Mumbai, that having a building that has a real resonance to its locality. So it was partially about that. It was partially about, you know, paying some homage to the industrial heritage of the place. 
But it was also about acknowledging the climate, the environmental climate in which Monterey sits. I mean, it's really hot and dry. And I equally wanted to then think about how could we approach the building rather than, you know, our European or North American model of we seal it up and air condition it. Can we look to more sustainable, even older ways of thinking about how we can create, you know, comfort within these buildings? So that then starts bringing in what we call the gills. So on, on this sort of shaped stadium, running along three sides of these sort of gills, like the gills on a fish. And within that sort of armature of, of the metal cladding is a huge space. It's a six-story, almost sort of cathedral-like space. And that's about getting natural ventilation. So it's about drawing air in from the southern winds, naturally ventilating, and then expelling the hot air out, out of these gills. And it works incredibly well and is super simple. So it's, it's a bit of form, well, function driving form rather than the opposite way around. When I saw that in the description, I was like, I've never seen anything like that before, but that's genius. It's just very simple, isn't it? I mean, it's technology that's thousands of years old. And I think that was one of my lessons on this job was trying to, within a context that doesn't have the level of sophistication of construction and materiality that we would in North America, how can we embrace some of these older technologies? You know, equally, we we developed a mechanical system for the air conditioning, which there is some air conditioning, where we built these huge ice stores. And we build the ice up during the night when the electricity load is, well, one, cheap, but also not being used. Turn it off during the day and use the ice to cool the building in the hot part of the day. So really simple old tech, I think, but appropriate for the context. Beyond the sustainable ventilation system, the team set out to integrate the site within the surrounding area. More than one-third of the site is green space with rainwater filtration and restoration systems integrated into the site, including the parking lot. The sustainability is something we're very proud of, and it's well beyond just the natural ventilation and ice stores. You know, it's a big site. It was a 26-hectare site with 3,500 cars. And there was a, a strategy across the whole site, which credit to the client is quite often something that's cut out for cost reasons was instituted the whole way through permeable paving, grass creek, mature trees, long life trees, where we're all planted. So it's all part of a much bigger sort of strategy. And it looks amazing now. We're almost what, almost 10 years later since it opened. It's feeling more mature. It's feeling like it's set within this natural context. It doesn't feel foreign. And that was really what something we wanted to, to really push as part of the development of this piece. Navigating through this site, you are treated to an amazing procession. Arriving at the site, you can approach from the north side through the landscape-heavy integrated parking area. From there, you have a striking view of the sculptural steel structure, which is only outdone by the remarkable view of Mount Sia that looms large beyond. As you get closer, the roar of over 50,000 fellow fans builds. It's about 53,000, 53,500 seats arranged over effectively what were predominantly four levels, four seating tiers on three sides and two on the short end. And like I said, you, you enter the building through the sort of low piece under the, the metal armature into this huge cathedral-like space, which is fantastic. It's all a beautiful cast-in-place concrete that was simple and is how they built buildings in Monterey. And then you sort of use these big stairs that take you up to the varying levels. So we also wanted 
this idea that everyone's in the stadium. And I think there's some weird bits around lots of stadiums where, you know, the people on the carpet, the VIPs come in some shishi entrance and go up an elevator and then sit in their private box, but never feel part of this amazing event, never get to see the other 50,000 people. So this idea that everyone comes in together into this big space and then you go to your varied levels was part of driving that building. And then it's everything you you would expect. I mean, food culture in Mexico is is important and hospitality is important. So a whole series of different levels of bars and restaurants. There's a lot of private suites. There's over 300 private suites, which is a lot for a contemporary stadium. But again, culturally, having the palcos, as I talk about it, you know, was very much sort of part of the culture that a business person may have the box for the company and a box for the family. So that sort of drove those sorts of numbers. Estadio BBVA is home to more premium seating than any other soccer stadium in Latin America, with neighborhood seating spaces designed to accommodate the hospitality-driven fan. More than 4,500 club seats and 324 suites create a well-rounded, more exclusive experience and balance a seating bowl that allows for camaraderie and intimate views, bringing fans closer to the action than any stadium in the country. Entering the seating bowl, you are greeted with a view of the expansive stadium and its open-air cantilevered roof structure, which frames a picturesque view of Mount Sia. The vast cantilever structure also guarantees comfort and shade within the stadium for spectators. The cantilever is about 50, 51 meters in, at its greatest span. And it's a, it's a relatively simple backstage cantilever. So it's a 50-meter steel truss that was, was actually very beautifully curved on site. They had fantastic steel workers, so we could curve it rather than what we would normally end up in faceted here. And it sits on both on the outer ring of the curve itself, which is effectively tying down that cantilever, and a vertical concrete element, which then forms within that cathedral space the whole building. So a relatively simple concept, quite a big span getting to towards 50 odd meters so it's quite a decent span and then obviously everything that goes with getting roofs like that working accessing them lights and gantries and pa systems and all, all of that was is relatively complex i love that you have a number of times already said relatively simple and you look at a picture of this building and nothing says relatively simple when you look at the picture I look at it and I'm a spec writer. I look at the picture of the building and I'm like, oh, but that was fun to write the specs for. <laughs> you know, when you're in early design phases, complex forms are great. They look brilliant and, you know, you can push around a Rhino model and it doesn't look awesome until you then start trying to build it and, and working out what materials you can you make this out and what materials are available in Mexico that we could build this out of. So there was a lot of time spent and we ended up choosing a cow zip mill finished aluminium product simple they could move it onto side it doesn't have a finish so it wears well but also they could do these fantastic shapes so you could do your straight run 35 meter long runs which is up and over the building but then they could do three dimensionals and so a lot of the time was spent actually modifying the shape and form so we minimize the amount of the, the more expensive complex bits of standing seam and maximize the more cost-effective straight runs. 
So that was a lot of time spent on doing that and optimizing models and running through some quite complex algorithms to, to form find uh, the best form. A lot of our time was spent on that. To bring the design to life, the team utilized familiar local materials. We used incredibly simple materials. So really, like I said, mill-finished aluminium because we could get it, we get the machines on the side really simply. We did really push what we could do with sanding seam in, in the three-dimensional forms, in semi-perforated. So you might have a 35-meter-long tray, but you know the first third of it, so the lower part of the building is perforated standing seam, becomes more solid and then totally solid as it corrupts over the roof. And then obviously the complex curves. We then used quite a lot of perforated aluminium and then sort of expanded metal meshes down at the lower level. So very a very steel exterior for some of the, the sort of design ideas, but it wears well. And what we wanted to produce, a building that looked as good in 10 years later, and it did on the, on the opening day. So like I said, it was mill finish, so we weren't dealing with any discoloration in the incredibly harsh sun. So it was using really simple materials, hopefully cleverly and in interesting ways, but nothing that was sort of exotic in the material sense, cast in situ concrete, precast concrete seizing tiers, and metal cladding. To pull off the delivery of this world-class facility, it required a talented international team. Firstly, we, we had a great local partner in VFO Architects, so we worked very closely with them and then project managers in Monterey called PMP, who were all brilliant. I was very fortunate. We had been based in New York, had a whole lot of Spanish-speaking staff, which made a, a huge help and a, and a number of Mexican staff within the company that worked with us. So we had a really good relationship and really the basic arrangement was that we had a series of within US-based consultants and they were all paired with a local consultant. So when we do a, a sliding scale of handover between the international consultants and the locals. That's a good way to do it, to have teams. I imagine it adds to the cost, but... No, not necessarily. I mean, it, no? you know, if you, well, if you think, I mean, crudely speaking, an engineer in Mexico is cheaper than an engineer in New York, where the heavy lifting comes in in the sort of, you know, CD sets. The bulk of the work is done by the locals who are familiar with what's available in codes and code requirements. And then at that point, the international, in inverted commas, consultant is, is making sure that it's staying true to the original principles and the calcs are working. And the same with the architecture. So it's a sort of a sliding handover. But And equally, you know, those guys are involved right at the beginning. So you know, we're not off designing something that can't be delivered wherever it is in Mexico or Brazil. Yeah, so it's very much a partnership. The result is a brilliant stadium for CF Monterey Rayados and its fans. BBVA challenges the expectations of a modern world-class soccer stadium. Chris's time working on BBVA and similar stadiums emphasized a few lessons that he carries forward to his work today. I think this was, for me, it was, there was a couple of projects. I did a, a stadium down in Brazil, in Natal, for the World Cup in 2014, around the same time. And I think really, as, a, as an architect, it was the beginning of me realizing the importance of contextuality. And I think architecture has become a little bit obsessed with imagery. And, oh, that's cool. That's the latest thing. And less about contextuality and, and community and local environment and what's appropriate. And so I'm very focused on the projects I take on, whether they're in Rome or Reykjavik, that they have a real resonance and, and position in that local context and the community and that what's right for one 
is most likely not right for another. So I'm very interested in how you can create a, a very local architecture, I think, that is still, you know, international standard and contemporary and but resonates with the communities and the users. Before we close out this episode, I always try to gain a little additional insight from our guests about the greater industry. For example, I asked Chris what he sees on the horizon as a game changer for the architecture profession. There are some big, big changes, I think. Certainly, the move from a design perspective into building information modeling is only half done. We're, we're certainly nowhere near that. And I know it sounds kind of boring and we'd rather talk about AI and how we're going to you know, have algorithms designing our buildings. But actually fully moving in and really using the power of building information models properly and having architects use them rather than architects, frankly, being the sort of fodder of producing incredibly complex models that help all of the other consultants and not the architects. I think there's a lot of work to do. And then obviously linking those building information models really up with manufacturing and on-site construction. There's still a lot of work to do. It probably sounds a little bit boring, but but having that fully joined up from design through to construction and on-site, I actually think it's probably the big revolutionary piece because you know construction is not, certainly here in the UK, is not particularly sophisticated still. It's still pretty simple and there's still a lot of wastage and there's still a lot of miscommunication, which just shouldn't happen. I mean, the, the models are there, everything exists. So I think if that happens, that's a huge change. You know, AI, I think, will definitely impact all of our lives in varying different ways. I think it will impact architects and I think positively impact architects if we use it correctly. But I think really the big change is actually getting designed to construction. And if you can get that sorted and done it properly, I think the efficiency in the system would be enormous. Finally, if you know me, you know how passionate I am about mentoring the next generation. With Chris's international experience, I was curious about his views on mentorship and what he may have gleaned from the global industry about how to improve it. I think there's some really great things happening in architectural education and therefore in industry. I think we had seen, you know, maybe five years ago, maybe a little bit longer than that, a whole series of young graduates who are coming out of, you know, great schools from all around the world who honestly didn't know what a building was. I mean, they were fantastically talented, you know, rhino, parametric scripting, brilliant, great eyes, great designers literally didn't understand that what they were making wasn't a piece of sculpture, that it was a building. I think we're also here here in the UK, we're seeing a lot more what they call apprenticeships, almost old school. So we have probably 10% of our workforce now are apprentices, which means they're studying and working at the same time. They take time off to you know go to Cambridge or wherever they're studying. And they become incredibly well schooled in being able to think through what it is to have a building and a building on site and putting a building together, marrying that at the same time with a more theoretical design-based education. And I think that's a great thing. And I think that's something you know we're really passionate about is bringing young architects into the practice, keeping them in the practice. We run a, a sponsorship, certainly here in the UK, we have a a two-part education, they're called very simply part ones and part twos, with a year in between. So our part ones, which we take on a lot of part ones in their year out, 
who are brilliant and fantastic and not only sort of clever and great designers, they're great fun to have in the in the studio. And then we'll sponsor a number of them and we'll pay for the second part of their education because we think they've got super skills and we want to keep them in the practice. So look, I think they're, they're the bits, I think, which is really positive that we're beginning to see a much more hybrid of architectural education where workplace is playing a greater part than sort of pure academia. This was such a fun conversation with Chris. I hope this episode sparks a new idea, helps you solve a problem that you've been working through, or inspires the mark that you want to leave on this world on your path to world domination. Look, I think it's probably as someone who spent my life building things, I would like my legacy to be in the people who are left behind, that they'd know me and hopefully miss me. <laughs> hopefully. <laughs> yeah, I'm not, I'm not interested in some, you know, 100-year-long edifice lasting. I think, I think the impact we have on the people around us who we care about is more important. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to learn more, visit rcat.com forward slash podcast to see photos, details, and more related project and product information that we discussed today. While you're there, take a look around rcat.com. For over 30 years, rcat has been the resource for AEC professionals to find the right products for their project. Try rcat and see how their tools can save you time and money and help you get ahead on your next project. Visit rcat.com. That's A-R-C-A-T dot If you enjoyed the show, you can support us by subscribing, leaving a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, and sharing this with your friends. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back to share more stories and lessons learned to help you navigate your next project.